Hi everyone, I'm John Offord, I'm a broadcaster based in the UK and welcome to Different Minds, a podcast series that looks at neurodiversity, the different ways our brains can work and interpret information. Today we're going to talk about dyslexia. I'm delighted to be joined by Dean Bourgonier, the founder of Notice Ability, a non-profit changing the world for students with dyslexia. Dean, welcome to the show. Tell us where you are in the world and how is everything going? Sure. I, I am traditionally I am based in Boston, Massachusetts in the United States, sort of the upper right hand corner there of the country. But I have migrated even further north uh, to the state of Maine, where I am tucked away uh, right on the edge of the Canadian border. So I just wondered, Dean, if you can just tell me um, what is dyslexia? Sure. You know, there's 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 multiple definitions of dyslexia. I will give you the sort of the layman's terms because I think that's that's the most applicable. Um, you know, essentially, there is, uh, uh, you know, our, our brains uh, do not come hardwired to read. That is an artificial man-made invention, right? We decided centuries ago that these squiggly lines were going to represent sounds. And those sounds, when strung together, would uh, compose words. So these these squiggly lines uh, require a synchronicity between the visual part of the brain and the language part of the brain. And for one reason or another, the dyslexic brain construction doesn't synchronize in that way. As a result, the acquisition of reading um, the ability to spell uh, becomes incredibly difficult. Um, in general, I think that's probably the best way to think about it. Uh, however, of course, with that unique brain construction comes with it, uh, certain uh, what I think are very desirable cognitive advantages, but I'm sure we'll, 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 we'll jump into that later. What, so what would you say are the symptoms of dyslexia then, Dean? You know, I think the symptoms or the presentations are most frequently uh, identified as a as a child's inability to adopt reading the way most do, meaning they are falling behind the regular progress uh, that would be appropriate for uh, grade progression. Right, very often. Kids will learn different skills at varying speeds, but the dyslexic will will never go through that uh, accelerated um, adoption rate for reading. They will always be staggered later uh, later to adopt the skill than their peers, and 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 in extreme cases, they will never adopt those skills. Um, however, uh, there are certain reading remediation techniques that are evidence-based uh, that that can enable a student to, uh, to, to be identified as being potentially dyslexic. However, I think that, you know, from my perspective as a person with dyslexia, I think that perhaps the most telling sign uh, the first red flag is is the frustration that mounts in the in the student who is attempting to read and cannot, and I think it's universal that we as human beings don't want to be identified publicly as uh, as individuals that cannot do something that are somehow uh, stupid or broken, and so a lot of the behavioral response to that frustration can manifest. And I think that that's actually the, the most telling signs. Um, if, a, if, a, if a child decides that it's easier to become the class clown, to divert attention from the fact that they can't read, or perhaps uh, they, they, they want to become um, perceived as the disengaged sort of rebel 
type. I mean, I'm not saying that a bunch of eight and nine year olds are, 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 are you know, rolling around with, with leather jackets and mohawks. But, you know, these early signs of rebellious activity, I think, is symptomatic of the frustration that they feel. And all too often, I think these uh, these presentations are 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 mislabeled. They are perceived as behavioral issues when, in fact, they are uh, an early indication of a child's inability to learn how to read. How do you diagnose someone with dyslexia? Sure. Well, so I, I was born in 1973, and I had the, the good fortune of having having a, a mother um, who is a, a child developmental psychologist and a father who is now deceased, but who who was a, a, a dyslexic. And you know that combination uh, lay, uh, raised a level of awareness in my home. So there was already sort of a I was already on on the radar screen, so to speak. Um, I was diagnosed at an extraordinarily early age for my generation. I was diagnosed in what we would call third grade. So that's probably uh, eight, nine years old, uh, maybe even earlier, seven, eight years old. I'm not sure uh, what the translation is in the UK. But the idea was that despite that early diagnosis for a 1973 baby, uh, it, is a, it, is, it is on the edge of a late diagnosis for a student in 2020. And the reason why, to get to the second half of your question, is that um, the neuroscience has developed to the extent where we now have a, a protocol that is administered by neuroscientists, that uh, neuropsychologists that are able to diagnose a student um, where their learning challenges lie and if within those learning challenges they are dyslexic. That process is extremely accurate. The problem is that a, there's a lack of general understanding about dyslexia. B, uh, those neuropsych evaluations tend to hover on the cheap side around a thousand U.S. dollars, uh, upwards of thirty-five hundred to four thousand U.S. dollars. So you've got to have that perfect combination of a, a, a an aware. Uh, observant, uh, educated teacher in the classroom. You've got to have the parent receptivity to the notion that their child's learning profile may be unique and come with it certain challenges. And lastly, they have to have the, the resources to go out and hire that uh, private evaluation. And rarely, rarely, rarely does that trifecta occur. So I'd say the vast majority, I'm saying, I don't know, estimates of 80% of dyslexics, I don't think will ever be diagnosed. Perhaps in the future, there are neuroscientists, especially those in Boston, that are looking at ways of um, sort of a, a a light in non-invasive brain scans that will allow uh, scientists to to determine whether or not a child is dyslexic in their first six months of life. And the beauty behind earlier detection is that the sooner that you are able to intervene with this reading-based remediation, the neuros uh, excuse me the neuroplasticity of the brain and especially in that of the dyslexic will respond to this type of reading remediation. So in theory, Early diagnosis leads to early intervention, which means that the reading challenges 
are not mitigated entirely, but are significantly reduced, which in turn reduces those behavioral aspects of frustration and animosity. And ultimately, I think reduces school attrition, alcohol and drug abuse and, and, and incarceration. But again, I get ahead of myself. How did you feel when you were diagnosed with dyslexia? The question that I'll answer is how did I feel before I was diagnosed? And, and I felt like an idiot. I felt stupid. I would come home, get off the school bus, tears streaming down my face, telling my mother that I was the stupidest kid in my class. And that, you know, while while a dyslexic diagnosis was able to give me sort of um, a, a, a reason, a, a very, um, a, a, a source of where my reading uh, challenges lay and, and, and gave me an ability to sort of differentiate that from this holistic perspective that I was broken. Now I was able to hang my hat on the idea that because of dyslexia, I struggle with reading. Um, but I, I think that diagnosis gave me a bit of a reprieve, but I, I John, it did not alleviate all of those years, and when I say all of those years, I'm talking about those vital years of five, six, seven, eight years old when you're starting to perceive how you fit in with your peer group. This diagnosis did not absolve me from the insecurities. In fact, those insecurities continued to 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 persist and and haunt me well into adulthood. And and I'm not alone. A uh, vast majority of dyslexics, unfortunately, agree with that statement, and that's and that is where the biggest challenge lies. You did a, a TED talk a few years ago, and it was all sorts of um, fancy words that you mentioned: mini columns, axons, phonetic decoding. But um, I just wonder if you could just uh, just break that down for us and just explain a little bit, of, you know, around the science, the neuroscience around that. Sure. Uh, so, so I'll be the first one to tell you, and I listen to all these renowned scientists around the world. I am not a neuroscientist, and even those that are will tell you that we are at the tip of the iceberg as to understanding um, the 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 intricacies of dyslexia and why this disconnection between the visual and the language parts of the brain don't synchronize. I subscribe to one working theory which is uh which is proposed by by two two neuroscientists called dr brock and fernet eide e-i-d-e who wrote a book called the dyslexic advantage which is sort of the cornerstone of the pedagogy we've created as an organization but what they subscribe to is this notion that we have these 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 things called mini columns which are embedded in the cortex of our brain and these mini columns essentially serve as telephone poles for um you know the axons uh, the the communication um network in our in our brains and they're they're research indicates that the space between many columns um, among dyslexics is uh, generally further apart. The distance between those many columns is further apart than it is of the neurotypical brain. Uh, at the other end uh, of the spectrum are those individuals with autism or Asperger's whose many columns tend to be located closer to each other. So the 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 um, the scientists, Dr. Brock and Fernet Eide, have postulated that it's this this uh, increased distance between those many columns that allows the dyslexic learner to 
A, mingle messaging when it comes to reading, but also more importantly, that it enables us to sort of, um, uh, to, 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 to broach, to, to, um, to sort of uh, connect different working parts of the brain so that we are able to see things in, in, in our perception that others may not. So again, everything that when it comes to the dyslexic framework is there are certainly perceived um, disadvantages that are real, and there are also advantages in perception. Again, though, I will go to uh, conferences and I will hear, you know, Harvard, uh, Harvard or MIT professors who have talked about a decade-long work uh, on, on, on the neuroscience of dyslexia, and they will say that we are definitively no closer to understanding it than we were before the study. And I, I, it's perplexing. Um, but then again, the brain is, is, is arguably one of the most fascinating and, and mystical um, organs in our body. Is it right to to say that dyslexia is a, a learning disorder that can be treated? And you know, is that the, the correct use of language? And you know, are there what is the treatment for dyslexia, or is there such a thing? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, it's it's again uh, the the word that we uh, use, and it's largely tied to American Disabilities Act, which is that dyslexia is diagnosed, or excuse me, is 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 categorized as a learning disability. And the word disability is um, is is a packed uh, statement. Um, the 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 legalities um, around educating students with disabilities is quite uh, robust. Now, whether or not it translates from legislation into action in the classroom depends very much on, on, on the state, the district, and the classroom. Um, however, the, the, the category of a disability does carry with it those legal protections. And for that reason, the, I, will, I, will, um, I will support and engage the word disability. However, I think that for dyslexics, I'm not sure that learning disability is as accurate as a reading disability. I would tend to, to lean more heavily on the latter. The idea is that we have um, an incredible a way to learn if content is provided to us in a way that our brains respond to. For example, uh, most dyslexics that I work with resonate with audio presentations or uh, visual presentations. They can look at a graph or a pie chart or a Venn diagram and understand instantly what the content of a uh, news article may be. But because they can understand this visual cue, they don't, nor do they want to, delve into the written word. Now, if you look at the way our educational, and I presume this is the same in, in the UK, the way our educational um, system was built was on printed word being that primary transmission of uh, learning, of content. Now, when you look at dyslexics and gauge them on their receptivity and their ability to decode, 
the written word, yes, we will be perceived as having a learning disability. When you look at these other modalities, you wouldn't say we've got a learning disability. You would say that more specifically, we have a reading disability, but a high propensity to learn through other modalities. And that's, that's the critical uh, distinction there. So, you know, obviously the name of my organization is, is a double entendre and it's, and it's on purpose. You know, what I want to highlight is the fact that if you start to look at students for what they are able to do, what they are capable of doing, how they learn, how they resonate, how they ingest content, you will start to notice ability. And as a result, you will see no disability. And so I, I do want to call into question the assumption that disability is the only way to categorize us. But again, the legalities in the classroom, um, we, we, we as a population benefit from the legalities associated with the word disability. So in terms of how dyslexia is treated then using specific educational approaches and techniques, I just wondered what those techniques might be in terms of maybe involving hearing, vision and touch to, to improve reading skills. The code has been cracked on the dyslexic learner. The question is whether or not a student will have access to that, to that new understanding. And in the United States, we're dealing with myriad different educational um, sort of conduits. And in most public schools, uh, unfortunately, uh, dyslexia is uh, barely recognized and, and rarely understood. Um, if a student comes from a family with the resources to put them into private education, uh, chances are that you are dealing with educators who may be more attuned to learning differences. Under the best case scenario, and if a family has upwards of 60,000, 70,000 US to spend per year on education, the student can go to a private learning differences school where exactly what you said, all of those different modalities are engaged in order to unlock the learning potential of the student. One of your TED talks, you you talked about that the shame is really you can affect young people in, in such a strong way. And, and I think uh, there was um, a particular... Uh, psychologist Gershon Kaufman, who discovered in his study on shame culture that people who struggle to read report feeling the same levels of personal shame as those that engage in incest. Exactly. It's so uh, overwhelming. It is so uh, palpable um, how much we as dyslexics feel isolated from our peer group. And I, I don't want to say that being different is something that is inherently destructive. Uh, Lord knows as we all get older in life, we want to distinguish ourselves as being different. But the problem is when you are in that early age bracket, five, six, seven, eight years old, and you start to perceive yourself as fundamentally different than your peers, and not because you have chosen to distinguish yourself, but because as a result of your brain construction, you are unable to achieve something that everybody else seems to adopt effortlessly. You can't help but to interpret that as a fundamental dysfunction of who you are, that you somehow came off the manufacturing assembly line defective. 
And it's, it's, I mean, look, as I talk about it, I can remember exactly what it feels like. It just this assumption that you have fundamentally misunderstood what this thing called life is all about, that you have had, or in my case, that I had a level of hubris that all of a sudden life was going to be easy and, 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 and that, um, and that I was going to be able to walk effortlessly, uh, along my path, that awakening that you have misunderstood something as fundamental as your own intelligence. And furthermore, that the one thing that you may gauge, the one tool that you are using to gauge whether or not you're intelligent is the exact thing that you're questioning. That's such a convoluted way of saying that, how can I, well, you know, you've got a parent that says, oh, you're not stupid. You're really smart. Well, you can't believe the actual mechanism that is interpreting what your parent is saying because you wonder whether or not you're too stupid to understand that they're lying to you. So, would you say that the you know there there is a high dropout rate of dyslexics from high school and and that you know given that a lot of young people may experience low self esteem anyway, they they may gravitate towards you know at risk behaviors like even drugs and violence. Absolutely. I mean, going back to the to the idea that we are somehow fundamentally broken, that we don't fit in with our peers, forces us to try to manufacture a self-identity within this skewed perception of who we are. And so I think that if in school where you go five days a week for whatever, six, seven hours a day, uh, you know that you're not going to fit in in that environment. You're not going to be uh, successful in that environment. If you happen to be the gifted athlete, and athletes tend to be the exception to the rule, the gifted athlete, while they still harbor self-doubt, are able to create a niche uh, within their community where they are valued and feel valuable. Again, it doesn't distinguish, or excuse me, doesn't extinguish the self-doubt that I'm talking about. But with the exception of the athlete, the vast majority of us then have to look elsewhere in order to find a positive self-identity. And let's be honest, you know, some of the less than savory options as we mature through what we call elementary and middle school usually tend to, to deal with, you know, less than desirable behavior, right? I mean, that's where, you know, criminal light criminal activity eventually evolving into perhaps gang involvement or heavier criminal activity or uh, self-medication through drug and alcohol abuse. Um, these are seen as quite viable options uh, for somebody who doesn't feel like they have many options. And so I think that as you try to, you know, placate your self-doubt as you try to medicate your way out of insecurity, what you're actually doing is you're compounding the issue and, 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 and leading yourself down uh, a path that, that is not going to end well. And, um, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of statistics indicating that upwards of 50% of adolescents involved in drug and alcohol abuse have dyslexia uh, or some sort of learning difference. Um, we also know there's a there's a very uh, often referred to um, uh, study out of out of Texas in the United States that indicates that 40 percent uh, of of adult um, inmates in the state of Texas have dyslexia, and you know here in the U.S. we're dealing with this this big question about how you 
how do you disconnect that school to prison pipeline? Well, we, we know statistically that a vast, uh, not a vast majority, but a significant portion of that school to prison pipeline are individuals with dyslexia or other learning differences. I think that if you want to go back to the root, if you want to attack the source, as opposed to simply trying to treat the symptoms, you've got to go back to early detection, early diagnosis, early remediation, and the social emotional support that these students need to thrive. I know you're very passionate about ending the isolation and pain of kids who are excluded from you know, the education system because of their dyslexia. And I just wonder if you can talk a bit more about the work that you do in your organization, which sees dyslexia as, as a gift, very much as a gift, as an opportunity And just to highlight that obviously dyslexics are often natural problem solvers and creators and entrepreneurs and builders and engineers. And obviously some of our greatest minds today, like Albert Einstein and even obviously um, Steven Spielberg uh, is dyslexic. Sure. I mean, it's, you know, look, uh, dyslexia is a mixed bag and, and, and we are very quick to point out that it comes with significant challenges during academia. I mean, I'm not saying for any, and I, I don't think I've ever said that, um, you know, that, that academics are anything other than a rigorous uphill battle. Um, however, what I think gets overlooked and, and that we get, um, we, we get too easily put into the bucket of only the challenge aspect of dyslexia. The benefits, the cognitive assets that, that neuroscience is now discovering are very compelling. And the correlation between those cognitive assets and those uh, professions, many of which you just named, is very compelling. Um, there, without going into great detail, and again, I, I would urge anybody who's, who's interested to read the book called The Dyslexic Advantage, or if they're dyslexic, to listen to the audio version of it. Um, it's what, what these cognitive advantages illustrate is that our perception of reality is, 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 is fascinating and quite powerful if these assets are highlighted and uh, supported. What we as an organization do is take that one step further and create a practical application where students with dyslexia who are in that middle school age range are able to take one of our classes and experience a couple of different things. First and foremost, our courses are specifically geared towards four professions that dyslexics are disproportionately successful in. These were by no means uh, restricted to these four professions, but these are the four that we've picked out. Entrepreneurship, engineering, architecture, and the arts. And what the dyslexic advantage does is it highlights how these cognitive advantages of dyslexia actually lend themselves to the success that we have in these professions. So what we've done is we've distilled those professions down to an age-appropriate level and cross-referenced it with the cognitive advantages that make us as dyslexics so good in these professions. And then what we've added is sort of a third layer, and this is really, really essential, is we've incorporated what we in the States call social emotional learning. Right? This is how an individual 
feels about themselves? How do they regulate themselves in team-based environments? How do they create uh, opportunities to resolve conflict, how to negotiate, how to uh, listen in a proactive way? All of this social-emotional learning not only addresses the individual's um, uh, sort of root insecurities. Uh, it encourages them to uh, migrate from a place of disenchantment into a place of being able to take control over their behaviors and their, and their interactions. And so what we watch or what we witness as, as students go through our courses is a redefinition of what dyslexia means, incorporating some of the advantages that it carries and understanding on a larger, more macro level, why it is that so many of the rote learning uh, associated with traditional education is actually necessary. If you want to become a, an architect, well, geometry is novels uh, is going to have relevance all of a sudden. If you want to be an entrepreneur, uh, you know the you know the the history of the Greek economy is going to have relevance to you, right? Otherwise, these these courses are pretty mundane and, and and arduous for most dyslexics. But if we give context to education, the dyslexic tends to resonate and understand and digest content at much higher rates. So you've already touched on this, but I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about what needs to be done across the world to, to raise awareness and understanding and, and, and in terms of offering support to, to people with dyslexia. And also, I just wonder what your thoughts were on kind of media representation of, of dyslexia. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I think that, you know, we, we have the we have the blessing of being able to work uh, internationally because uh, the way our courses are offered, um, we are structured in a way that uh, if you speak Dutch, Portuguese or English, soon to be Cantonese or Mandarin, you'll be able to access our content and be able to take our courses. Um, I believe that if you provide students with this research-based remedi uh, reading remediation that I mentioned earlier, largely based on Orton-Gillingham methodology. If you compound that with social-emotional learning and a strength-based approach to dyslexia, um, we're, we're the, the only folks, unfortunately, I think we're the only folks that that offer this this unique approach. Uh, I hope I hope that a lot more people will do it because the more the merrier. But if you blend these two components and you get that early detection, that remediation, and then that strength based reinforcement of how a child can be in the world, you're going to start to see a population, not of old gray bearded people like me, but a new population of dyslexic learners who are empowered. And to be frank, I go to these conferences, I listen to a lot of people my age and older, and we're all pontificating about what we think is right and wrong for the dyslexic learner. I'm tired of it. I think my answer is empower the next generation, let them lead the charge. And once they are empowered, they're not going to stand idly on the sidelines and have themselves neglected by a society that doesn't understand them. So what's the next step 
Well, you're absolutely right. The way that dyslexia is represented in pop culture, I think, is going to be really pivotal. It's a huge benefit every time somebody like Steven Spielberg or In Your Neck of the Woods or Orlando Bloom and Kiera Knightley or Richard Branson, all of these dyslexics start coming out of the woodwork and declaring themselves dyslexic. And because of who they are, because of their unique value that they have given to society, all of us will start to inevitably redefine our understanding. And the more strength-based uh, narratives that come out, the more the stigma that is imposed upon kids with dyslexia will diminish. So I see a very bright future. Unfortunately, I have to take a sort of a multi-generational perspective because it's not going to happen overnight. But it's it's we'll get there. We're we're a lot further along than we were 30 years ago, but we're nowhere near where we need to be. What would you say, Dean, to anyone listening to this podcast that perhaps maybe to able to identify with some of the uh, the symptoms of dyslexia and, and, and not quite sure what what to do next? The most simple next step for anybody who has listened to a conversation like this is to try an experiment over the next two days. Mention to three other four, four other people that you heard something about dyslexia. And I can almost guarantee that you will find out that there are dyslexics that are a part of your life that you never knew were dyslexic because they are masquerading. They are doing everything in their power to cover up the fact that they're dyslexic. The moment that you, as an individual, may you be dyslexic or not, start to discuss this multi-pronged perspective, both the challenges and the benefits of dyslexia, you will be amazed at how many of us walk amongst you. We are everywhere. The highest estimate is one in five people. Really conservative estimates put us at 7%. Let's say we're 15% of the population. We are a huge group of people and we are there. We are to one degree or another trying to resolve the demons of our youth. But more importantly, if you can, shameless plug, notice ability in these individuals, you will very quickly see that the dyslexics in your life are creating unique value. And I would argue that more often than not, you wouldn't want to have that person and their contribution to your life disappear. They are far too valuable. What's the best advice someone ever gave you? You know, the best advice that I've ever been given is probably a mashup of little clues that were given to me by many, many people. But I think the overriding summary, the, the most powerful statement that I think these collective voices have made is that we need to challenge ourselves to look for and to seek out the best in people. And if we can try to uncover what each of us brings to the table, each little colorful thread in this fabric of humanity, we will start to recognize that we are all different in our unique ways and that together we make up this fabulous tapestry that 
can be celebrated, should be celebrated, both our similarities as well as our distinctions, and that none of us is obviously any better or worse than each other, but most importantly, that we all bring value. So I guess the collective advice that I've received is look for the best in people. I'm sure you'll find it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Dean. It's been really inspirational and, you know, um, obviously keep up the good work that, that you guys do to obviously help young people with dyslexia and you know, help them identify their unique strengths and build self-esteem. And yeah, it's um, fascinating talking to you today. Hey, John, listen, I appreciate it. And uh, thank God you're a professional editor because you get this dyslexic talking and I'll give you far more material than you'll ever need. So good luck in the editing booth, man. You'll need it. (laughs) Thanks very much.